This is the Eclipse Viewer, episode 43, Alexander Korda's Private Lives. Uh, the Eclipse Viewer is the podcast dedicated to the Criterion Collections uh, sideline series, the Eclipse series of overlooked, lost, and forgotten film classics issued in DVD-only editions. And as always, I'm joined by Trevor Barrett. My name's David Blakesley, and Trevor, good morning. Good morning, David. Hey, we are here to talk about some, uh, you know, kind of quaint and corny old films from the 1930s. Uh, these are uh, four historically based uh, dramas, comedies, biopics, whatever you want to call them, uh, produced by the London Film Studio, founded by Alexander Korda. Alexander Korda was one of those, uh, you know, kind of titans of, of the golden age of cinema, uh, made a pretty huge impact on uh, English film. And uh, even though he was not a native of Great Britain, in fact, he was a, a Hungarian immigrant who had, uh, you know, been in the movie business for nearly 20 years uh, by the time these films were made. So even though they might seem like, you know, quote unquote, early films of Korda because he had quite an illustrious career uh, after um, you know, the first one, The Private Life of Henry VIII, came out. Uh, and became kind of legendary as one of the most significant producers of the of his era from the 30s up until maybe the early 50s. Uh, he'd been at it for quite a while, um, kind of with, with some pretty uh, interesting ups and downs in his own career. So we're going to be spending some time talking this morning about uh, four movies that were all produced between 1932 and 1936. And if you think those you know, four movies in four years, that's impressive. Well, he was producing a lot of other movies at that same time. That was back in the <laughs> day when studios, directors, actors, producers just really cranked out the product uh, with an, an incredible, uh, you know, prodigious uh, energy and, and of course, all kinds of resources at their disposal. So, uh, yeah, we're going to just talk about these four films and kind of see where the conversation leads. So, uh, yeah, any other thoughts or any uh, uh, kind of opening comments you got for us, Trevor, as we kind of get into this latest discussion? Well, just one thing on your last uh, thought there of how many films he was producing and, and directing or just involved in. You know, I've we've talked about a few individuals that have done something like that. You know, we've got Ozu, we've got Shimizu, and, um, you know, they're just a bunch of... Uh, of folks from that time period who produced a lot of films or directed a lot of films. But I think this is the first one who's also been a producer on, on the films. And it was interesting to see just how many ups and downs he must've suffered every other month during that time period as a movie either <laughs> yeah. made it or did not make it. And the London film studio was, was just kind of getting rocked to and fro depending on how these things uh, lived or died at the box office. It was, it's kind of stressful reading just to, just to pick up on that time period and go, Oh, there's a big success. They're going to make it. Oh, their follow-up did not do well at all. <laughs> and now they're going down. And just, just to realize that that's not, you know, every few years that it kind of ebbs and flows, it's like with every film and they're doing quite a few of them and he's he's kind of at the top um, with a personal stake in the whole thing. Not that, not that the actors or directors involved don't have the personal stake. They certainly do. But it just, just realizing how um, his creation, you know, this studio uh, and, and his own personal stake in, in that – um, went up and down during this period. It, it's it's quite fascinating. Um, 
So that's that's uh, that's some good reading just to to learn about this very early period, kind of uh, before some of the massive hits that we still recognize as classics, because uh, you know first maybe because they're in the Criterion Collection proper itself, uh, Thief of Baghdad or the Third Band, but. But um, you know this this 1930s time period as people are getting their feet on the ground and in the sound era, and you know here's a little studio that that could, so yeah yeah well and you know just to kind of backtrack a little bit on Corda's life I did you know post some links uh, you know Wikipedia articles and such that kind of give a little overview. Uh, like I said, he was uh, born in Hungary. Uh, you know, kind of got started in the uh, Eastern European film industry. Uh, traveled around quite a bit, actually. Uh, you know, had some some uh, political or you know kind of legal issues. He was uh, kind of affiliated with a very short-lived uh, communist. Uh, I don't know if you want to call it a revolution. It was just kind of a coup of sorts that took place in Hungary. And when that when that uh, regime fell. Uh, in a very brief period of time, he was kind of implicated and uh, left Hungary, kind of bit of an exile, I suppose, but had never never returned there for the rest of his life, not even for a visit, apparently. Uh, but he, you know, he kind of found his way to Hollywood in the 1920s in the silent era, actually, you know, directed a few films there. And as, you know, as Trevor said, he's, you know, he had some, you know, significant successes, uh, brought his wife over, uh, which is, you know, uh, you know, she was a, a bit of a star herself, but uh, she had a very difficult time transitioning into the sound era because of her very strong accent and very limited, uh, you know, command of English, at least uh, as a performer. And uh, and so their marriage kind of suffered as a result because he continued to have success. She was kind of sidelined, and that was the end of that relationship. But you just see this pattern of an incredible boom or bust already establishing itself in Corda's life, even before his uh, greater fame was secured. And and uh, yeah, with the, with the London films as well. You know, Trevor's already mentioned a, a few of the titles here. And if you just even go into Criterion's uh, list of films available on Hulu, uh, you know, there's just an enormous catalog of, of London films. And one of the interesting things you can sort of envision is that, you know, somewhere back in the day, Criterion or Janus Films uh, signed a contract and got the rights to this, you know, really impressive you know, archive or this treasure trove of, of classic films and, and their mission since then has been, well, how do we package all this stuff? So let me just kind of, you know, cruise down the list here. So uh, there are about six or seven different films that uh, were released before The Private Life of Henry VIII uh, as London films, uh, several of them, again, available on, on Hulu, uh, but others that, that have come in the meantime, Sanders of the River, part of the Paul Robeson set, uh, the Scarlet Pimpernel, uh, Things to Come, which Scott and I and uh, others discussed uh, Me? not too long ago. Oh, that's right. You were part of that one. I wasn't <laughs> sure right off the bat. But, yeah, uh, we talked about that on Criterion Cast, and that was actually produced between uh, uh, The Private Life of Don Juan and uh, Rembrandt. So, again, they were just cranking them out here. But uh, you go a little bit later on, uh, Fire Over England, Elephant Boy, uh, I, Claudius, an early adaptation of that kind of great novel. Uh, the Drum, uh, The Four Feathers, another Criterion Blu-ray, uh, you know, just a lot of a lot of pre-war stuff um, as as the kind of the whole you know British war effort ramped up in the early 1940s. Conquest of the Year, Thief of Baghdad, uh, The Fallen Idol, uh, you know, the uh, 
the small back room, a kind of a late Powell and Pressburger film. So, and, you know, and, and just just on and on and on. And so, and then a lot of other titles that are a bit more obscure. Oh, I'm seeing the Tales of Hoffman here. Uh, he is actually the last film that uh, Corda was directly involved in. I think was Richard III, the Laurence Olivier Shakespeare adaptation in 1955, and I think the following year he died of a heart attack, and and that was it as far as his life story is concerned. But uh, really, a very very significant player when it comes to producing some of the greatest films of the you know first half of the 20th century, and very. Uh, British films. I mean, yes, those yes. those are British films because of where they came from, but also just in some of their perspectives on the world, on on imperialism, on the British uh, nobility, or or um, you know proper Britishness, and yet you know he was from Hungary and had spent time in Hollywood. And then after a bust, moved to to London to to start up this little studio. So, you know, he has a fingerprint on on some of the things that we might think of as formatively British. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, right. I mean, because, you know, Big Ben is the logo, the Mm -hmm. famous chime sound. uh, The name of his film distribution company was British Lion Productions. So, you know, he really, uh, you know, he really did epitomize that British identity uh, quite thoroughly, very much assimilated himself to it, even though that really wasn't his uh, native heritage. So it's a little bit about Alexander Korda. And again, yeah, this is this is a little bit on the unique side because this is a, a set of films uh, kind of featuring a producer, although he actually was the hands-on director of these four films. Uh, one of them, The Rise of Catherine the Great, the second film we'll talk about, was uh, credited as Paul Zinner. But if you read some of the reviews and some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, it's pretty uh, apparent that uh, Corda's hand was very heavily at work here. He uh, actually intruded and took over certain scenes. Uh, Paul Zinner, you know, uh, was a was a German director who'd been hired to come in, and I guess he'd had a bit of his own success and was a bit of a name director at that time. Uh, but but Corda, you know, has a very uh, sort of a checkered reputation as well. I mean, we've talked about his prowess as a producer and as a you know, mover and shaker in the film industry, but there are certainly uh, a number of detractors. And some of the reviews that I've quoted or included a link to in the show notes uh, seem to take Corda to task because he's a bit on the garish side. Uh, his his work is rather inconsistent. Uh, he's not what you would call an auteur. These these films are not necessarily selected by Criterion on the basis of his, you know, cinematic genius. But uh, he had a couple brothers, uh, Zoltan and and, uh, Vincent, who were also very involved in the production. I think Vincent Corda was the set designer. And that's really one of the more impressive aspects of these films is just the, you know, the lavish production values. But as far as, you know, cinematic, uh, you know, brilliance or camera work or things of that sort, or even just the directing uh, of of the actors. Uh, I don't know that you can really say Corda had a uh, a really masterful hand here. He happened to have some pretty good casting and some that that created some pretty interesting dynamics uh, for the films themselves. But his directorial effort to me seems very workmanlike and pretty much just straightforward uh, for its time. Uh, any thoughts on what you saw, just in terms of the? I don't know the filmmaking process, or or uh, you know any distinctive marks of Corda as a as a, a film creator. 
No, you won't get any arguments from me on your perspectives there. I, I actually I had a really hard time with The Private Life of Henry VIII um, because I thought it was pretty poorly made. You know, obviously beautiful sets yeah. uh, designed by Vincent Corda. And, you know, naturally seeing Charles Lawton performing the role he was born to play um, is quite something. But the the film itself, I had a hard time with it. I did feel like things started to pick up um, after that, and it's it's it. We can look at these films chronologically and, and think how the the studio and how Corda himself might be progressing. But that's also kind of difficult, since, as you mentioned earlier, there were so many other films being made at this time. It's not just a step by step thing. Um, but yeah, I, I I agree that the that Vincent Corda's work in here is extremely distinctive, and. Other than that, you know, a lot of it is just the um, the actors that they he managed to to sign on, and and it's you know Charles Lawton, uh, Douglas Fairbanks Senior, um, for really uh, interesting bits. You know, these are kind of not just brilliant casting because these are people these characters were born to play, but but even just the the personalities of the actors when when coupled with the 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 character they're playing is, is really a fascinating little story. And I think that's where a lot of the value of this set comes out is in the stories about this time period, um, about the films that they're making, why they were making them. Uh, the actors involved. It's not always the the funnest way to approach a body of films. Um, that you know you have to look at the, the historical <laughs> uh, background in order to really get a lot of enjoyment out of them. And maybe I'm being a little unfair to suggest that that might be one of the biggest parts of this set. But it it, it is enjoyable with this one. I, I really liked um, learning about uh, more about Alexander Corda and about the the behind-the-scenes stuff with these pictures. Uh, though once I got through Private Life of Henry VIII, I also started to enjoy the pictures for what they were a lot more. So Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much in the same place. I mean, uh, yeah, I was saying before we actually started recording, this, this is a set that uh, just as films themselves or as uh, kind of, you know, the experience of watching them, this felt a little bit more like, okay, I'm just going to work at this and just you know try to get what I can from it. But I did not engage with these films at the same level, even like our most recent set, the Chantal Ackerman, uh, where I, uh, you know, th- those films are not necessarily the, the warmest or most inviting in for pure entertainment value, but I was just so fascinated to to sort of have this encounter with uh, uh, Chantal Ackerman's mind and creative process, and obviously there are much more contemporary films. These here feel, to me, very dated, and, it, and not dated in a negative way necessarily, but... Though know, there might be some of that. Well, well, yeah, well, there, there, there certainly is, yeah. But, but uh, I'm not trying to hold their age against them. It's just it just did not uh, compel my attention to the same degree. And and uh, there's another set that we haven't covered yet. The uh, uh, the George Bernard Shaw set that has some of that, those same limitations. These are there's a certain <laughs> whatever you want to call it corniness or or. Uh, you know, staginess to this whole thing that it, it these it, they are kind of a unique uh, subcategory within the Eclipse series itself, which obviously goes in so many different artistic directions. And these films, in a certain way, are maybe very conventional. Um, but you're, I, I actually prefer more of that 
meta view of the films. Like, okay, there's Charles Lawton playing, you know, Henry VIII, or there's Charles Lawton as Rembrandt, or there's Douglas Fairbanks uh, Sr. in his final film, or, you know, here's, uh, you know, Catherine the Great, uh, uh, her, the, 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 the Paul Zinner Corda version versus the uh, Sternberg Dietrich version that came out that same year. So, so some of that is kind of putting it in the historic context. And also, who are these, uh, you know, these great figures of, of culture and history that are being represented to audiences of the 1930s? And how do these kind of legends in their own times, uh, what do they epitomize and what are they saying to uh, people of their day, you know, when the films were first made, and what do they still say to us now as we think about men like Henry VIII and Rembrandt and legendary figures like Don Juan or, or uh, you know, female uh, you know, empowered rulers like Catherine the Great. So that's kind of the angle I probably will have more to say about than the, the details of plot and, you know, the mechanics of getting from here to there uh, over the course of each film. So... Yeah, there's certainly not much difficulty in someone sitting down and watching the films and understanding the plot. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's pretty straightforward. So, Uh, you know, it's one thing. Maybe I'll try and get this out right now. Um, I I, I sometimes get not frustrated because it's not my place to get frustrated, but it's it's interesting that sometimes these particular films – um, you know, these are the ones that I grew up watching um, on, on television and definitely giving me a, a kind of a warped perspective on what filmmakers were able to do in the 1930s. And and um, I, I, I've said kind of the same thing in past episodes about what Hitchcock was able to do in his silent era. It just feels incredibly limited and it makes it so that I start to feel like, oh, that's just what they were able to do back then. They didn't they didn't know any better. When that is not true, because there's so many fascinating, um, artistic, just brilliantly creative uh, cinema being made at this time around the world in the 20s and 30s that, uh, you know, shows that, no, they they, they knew how to do a lot of things that filmmakers today would kill to know how to do. Um, And fortunately, we've been able to talk about some of them, but, you know, for whatever reason, we we've got this perspective that you know here's here are these films of the 1930s you know the private life of henry the eighth is one of the one of the first great films and it's like no no it isn't it's not even a great film (laughs) certainly not one of the first great films and and some of that could be my own background very limited you know i i didn't grow up in a film loving household necessarily but just oh here's here's the progression of films here's what they were doing when you know it, it just it just wasn't that way and so I, I'm glad to have the other perspective on these films to show why they're interesting but I'm certainly glad that um, you know I've personally uh, discovered uh, you know learned more um, about these eras to to realize that the limitations in these films are are because the filmmaker didn't know what he was doing entirely he wasn't creative uh, a, a, a creative director necessarily he, he was as you said workmanlike and there were others doing amazing work uh right around the corner <laughs> you know so yeah well and i think the pace of production really did kind of um result in some scenes that seemed very hastily thrown together or just like okay here's the script let's get up there let's say our lines let's do the thing you know again there's there's a 
a, a brilliant, you know, team of craftsmen, set designers and construction workers and, uh, you know, lighting yeah. by Georges Perenal is kind of another noted uh, feature of these films. You know, there, there's definitely some pretty cool atmosphere that's created um, and some of the costumery and, and some of the those details are, are pretty rich. But, you know, you, you see a fair amount of that in the old studio system and, uh you know th- that's all there. The actors themselves, you know, with the exception of uh, you know titans like Charles Lawton, who just you know literally stomps and strides and, and chews the scenery, uh, but does so in a way that's not you know uh, over the top. He, that's exactly what he's expected to do, and and he does it you know with 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 flourish and and, and with great style and, and very memorable. Uh, that's that's the that's the key attraction right there. And so it is, it's just kind of, you know, following along and, and watching, uh, watching them go through their emotions. But, but there is a certain artificiality, uh, that, that kind of, okay, so there they are kind of doing their thing. And, and if you're in the right mood and, and if you're really a big fan of this style of filmmaking, then it's, it's a great ride. And, and, uh, there is a truth that they don't exactly make films like this anymore. So, yeah. yeah, those are our uh, preambling <laughs> thoughts there. <laughs> I, I do um, also yeah. really like that, um, you know, this may be one of the few times when you can say Charles Lawton is literally chewing the scenery. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's a big part of his role in uh, Henry VIII is just chewing on things. Yeah, just so. gnawing and chomping, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, let's get into Henry VIII then. So this was a film that actually did get an Academy Award nomination, and I think did, did Lawton win a... Uh, yeah. an award as actor here he as did, well. I believe. Right. I believe so he this, won Best Actor. Right. So this is a film that was a you know quite a significant sensation, and I'm not sure this might have been even the first uh, British film to to get an Oscar nomination, or at least in some of these major categories. So uh, you know, I've I've linked to some of the original New York Times reviews from 1932, 33, 34 for some of these early films, which I always enjoy reading because they really do give a sense of. The uh, you know the contemporary reaction, not that the New York Times uh, you know uh, dictated everything, but uh, they were the paper of record then, and I guess they still cling to that reputation now. And uh, they they hired some pretty good movie writers, uh, you know, back in the day as well. So so what we have here is a retelling of the story of King Henry VIII, uh, legendary for having had six wives in the course of his reign, and. And this uh, lusty, you know, uh, gregarious personality who, if he sees, if he sees something he likes, he just goes out and get it. Whether it's a woman, it's a drumstick, uh, it's it's uh, the resources to you know, go fight a war or, or just uh, aggrandize himself because he's a man's man and there's nobody there to stop him and tell him no. <laughs> and so that's that's kind of the the uh, the gist of the story of of Henry VIII. Uh, uh, I don't remember the names of all the wives right off the bat, but the first wife of Henry VIII uh, was not even, uh, you know, really mentioned. She's kind of dismissed in the opening uh, title sequence there. And then we get right into uh, Anne Boleyn, who was, uh, you know, the one who was most notoriously you know, executed almost on a whim uh, so that he could... Uh, you know, Mary Jane Seymour. I guess Anne Boleyn had been unfaithful. That was the pretext. But, you know, I guess it's the old double standard at work here. Uh, and so then we go through the sequence of the different wives, and it's really just kind of a pageant is, is how the film feels to me. It's just a chance for Lawton to, to do his, you know, rapacious, carnivorous thing, uh, and the audiences to, to laugh at that. There's, there's a little bit of... Uh, 
oh, I don't know, kind of somewhat, somewhat risque humor, uh, which I guess they could get away with in, in some of these uh, British films, whereas Hollywood sometimes had a little bit more timid take on certain things. So there's an earthiness to this movie that I think was pretty refreshing to audiences of the time. And again, uh, just, the, just the ornate presentation of it all. Uh, those are just kind of the, the surface effects that, that uh, impressed themselves on me. Yeah, I thought it was pretty trite. Um, personally, I, I, again, I still I liked watching Charles Lawton, and I really liked Vincent Corda's set design. I thought it was incredibly elaborate and, and fun to look around. But you're right; it's a pageant of of his wives, um, and all of it relying on basic humor and basic uh, knowledge of who these people are. Um, I just I just didn't like it. I did not like um, the portrayal of, of a lot of the people. Um, you know, Anne Boleyn kind of with, with her, her execution. It's not like I think it was offensive. I don't, you know, that was 500, 600 years ago now. Right. Um, it's just kind of silly and not in a, not in a way that made me uh, chuckle at all um, to, to have her kind of approaching the, the execution the way that she does. Um, you know, to have the the people in the crowd treating it as if it's just a sporting event, maybe because of you know we've seen that in many other films, um, probably made sense. This one, this for all I know, was the first one who ever showed that kind of humor, but it just didn't come off very well. I, I thought the editing was very poor. There were many scenes that looked like the the camera was running, and then the actors would kind of warm up and and start, and then the they would be done with their scene and kind of. Uh, you know, let it all start to rest. But the editor didn't cut out the those parts, <laughs> you know, the the warm up or the or the the rest at the end. And you just it felt right. very choppy. Um, mm-hmm. Just getting on to the next wife, to the next wife, to the next wife, to the next wife, until you get to Henry's uh, uh, kind of comical last line of yeah. uh, the best of them is the worst of them. Right. kind of thing and it's like uh, was that why we watched this was <laughs> for that punchline uh so so yeah i was i was very wary of the whole set by this time and i thought i don't even you know these films are short they're basically 90 minute films throughout and i was i was worried how much of a chore it was going to be to get through all of it because i just did not enjoy this film for many reasons mm-hmm. and uh Fortunately, as I'll, I'll say when we get to him, I, that did change a lot. I, I really liked the last three films in the set, but but this one, I I was I was kind of dumbfounded at, at how this was kind of looked at as the foundation. You know, after after chugging along for uh, quite a few pictures, finally the London Film Studio had uh, had gotten its feet on the ground. Here's a hit, makes a lot of money. Um, I just thought it was fairly clumsy other than the set design and uh and charles lawton and, yeah. and even even charles lawton you know he he's done a lot better work i think and has probably played a better henry the eighth in in a, in a later film <laughs> you know, so, yeah what film was that i think it was it um let me okay. look it up while you uh I'll, I'll look it up really quick and you can uh follow up on Okay. Anything you wanted to right there. I'll well, you know, I, I, I honestly feel like uh, we can just kind of move on to the next thing, you know, because, um, you know, I, I, I don't <laughs> no <laughs> I have a whole lot more to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know it, it, I think we've pretty much summed up our take on it right there. 
And if, uh, you know, if there's people who were hoping that we could dig into it further, well, you know, this might be one where we just kind of breeze on by and uh, and move All on right. to other things. Okay. It was Young Bess, by the way, Young a Bess. 1953 uh, biopic. Not a great film by my memory. I I, I do like I, I like Elizabethan the world. I uh, like Shakespearean stuff. I like the I like Henry VIII's story. I like learning about his heirs and all the, the the mess that was made around there. I like his I like his consorts. I like his wives. I like the you know Sir Thomas More. I like learning about Thomas uh, Cromwell. And uh, the people that led up to him. So you know, it's not that I'm an expert, but I do, I do like a lot of this stuff. And maybe that was another reason why this one just felt so trivial and wrongheaded, and you know, just a, a bunch of uh, well, uh, badly planned um, jokes and things. But anyway, he did play Henry VIII again in Young Bess. He's much older. Um, but he still looks the role. <laughs> you know, well, just... that is a pretty impressive feat, especially when he first makes that that grand entrance through that little uh, portico there, and he strikes the the famous pose from the the Hans Holbein uh, portrait. You know, mm-hmm. wide legs, hands on hips, thrusting his chest out there. It's like I'm I'm the king, man. You know, just check me out. Um, so. That that's really there, but but I guess it kind of draws me back to this idea of the the private life notion that uh, I guess is a bit of a common theme running through this set, and the and the selling point that this was the behind the scenes. This is this is King Henry VIII as a real man with his lusts and his appetites and his uh, you know go out, go for the gusto way of living. Um, that I guess is the conceit or the supposed innovation that. Uh, Corda and his crew were trying to to relate here, and maybe uh, for those audiences, it seemed a little bit more refreshing because they were perhaps more steeply, uh, more steeped in in the lore and the traditions and all the historical politics and battles and you know the years and the you know the the pivotal events of of the careers of these you know crowned heads of England and Europe. Uh, I'm not that familiar, other than reputation, uh, with with people like Henry VIII, and and I I couldn't tell you if he came before or after Queen Elizabeth or any of that kind of stuff. It's just Queen the, Elizabeth is his daughter with Anne Boleyn. I can okay. Well, good. Well, that's that's how that's how uh, <laughs> much of a novice I am to that stuff. And I oh, probably and it's so fascinating. There's it, so much good stuff out there about yeah. about mm-hmm. this time period and these people. But but yeah, this. This certainly wouldn't be that instructive. It really, and that's the, that's the thing. It, it didn't make an impression upon me about, you know, how he really, you know, did influence the course of history. And again, when the film is titled "The Private Life," I guess that's not what they're aiming for. But honestly, you know, I, think, you know, yeah. I, I feel like they're just going for the boudoir. But they didn't even do that particularly right. well. And, I mean, and here's a man with six wives who can get right. what he wants, and mm-hmm. even that humor wasn't played up as well as it was. In in the next two films, the you know right, the rise right. of Catherine the Great and the private life of Don Juan, those were much, I think, much more, um, you know, f- nuanced in in, in their risqueness. 
Um, but yeah. anyway, I well, started I, I, cutting I, off. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, maybe Corda uh, started watching some Lubitsch films a little bit, and got a, <laughs> got a little bit of an insight as to how to kind of get a little more saucy in an effective way. But you know, what I, where I was going with that previous comment was kind of like you know, there's the Rossellini history films, which are you know, notoriously dry, and you talk about homework and and uh, you know, <laughs> writing your your history exam, and yet those films actually you know, engaged me on a deeper level to really try to get into the personalities of, you know, people like, uh, like Descartes, uh, and Pascal and, and others, um, who were, you know, obviously great men of history, but, uh, even though he wasn't trying to do, you know, the private life in some kind of salacious or entertaining way, you felt like you get to know their personalities a little bit as well as the you know, towering achievements that they're famous for. And, uh, you know, I, I walk away from Henry VIII and again, maybe, maybe I could have paid closer attention or whatever, but I didn't really get a sense of the consequence of his life other than the fact that he's just a, you know, kind of a big badass dude who could do what he wants to, cause there's nobody around to get in his way. Uh, and that was sort of the escapist fantasy of the film that, audiences uh, enjoyed then and perhaps to some degree still enjoy now just because he is such a you know uh, kind of a, a a grotesque clown of a king uh, that's kind of what you get there and you know take it or leave it i guess yeah yeah we, uh, and i'd love to hear from people who who feel more keenly on this film than than david and i do um, because I know that they are out there. I, I went around and just kind of to see if I was the only one who really didn't like, not just didn't like it. I, I really disliked this film. Um, but you know, Letterboxd, for example, has quite a few people who are, oh, this was funny and not really, really clever. And I, I'd love to hear from from some of those people to just you know give give some good reasons why we're overlooking some of the qualities. Um, Beyond those that we've already mentioned that we enjoyed, well, let's uh, let's move it over to Catherine the Great. Then uh, you, you mentioned that the kind of the, the trend started ticking upwards for you. Why don't oh you give yeah, us a little overview in of a this great film? way. Yeah, like I, I, I I was very very pleasantly surprised by this film. I thought that the the humor was handled better and and to more grave results in this one, where the film you know, starts to shift from the boudoir humor and um, Catherine the Great and her husband just trying to get along um, to their ultimate conflict, which, and this is also one where I I only knew a very little bit about Catherine the Great. And I I don't think this film um, itself, you know, taught me anything incredibly new, but it did um, get cast some color on that time. Um, you know, she was uh, an empress of, of Russia. Um, I forget what years, David. Do you have those handy? So I think the, in the 1700s. 1700s. Yeah, right. Kind of mid-century there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, she came to power. She Her husband um, of about, I don't know, six months or so was overthrown and executed in a coup. And she was placed, uh, you know, as, as the supreme empress at that time. And that's basically the story that I knew. And went on um, to have a very lengthy reign. I yeah, mean, she, she, a very she, successful one. She's right. called the Great for for 
reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 she wasn't necessarily you know born and bred to it. I mean, she was a princess, but she didn't you know necessarily come in thinking that that was going to be the course of her life. I mean, she was going to be the you know the consort to uh, this this czar, you know this heir to the Russian uh, you know monarchy and all that. And 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 uh, she would just do her her bit, you know, but uh, circumstances turned out to be quite different. Uh, in the uh, Scarlet Empress, which is the Joseph von Sternberg, Marlena Dietrich uh, film that I mentioned earlier, we have this same story, but told with a very sort of different twist. I mean, this von Sternberg had this incredible, you know, powerful sexual undertones and really kind of almost horrifically bizarre set designs uh the you know Catherine's husband uh, Czar Peter was you know instantly introduced as this kind of feeble-minded madman this kind of really horrible just repellent type type of character and of course here's you know glamorous Marlena Dietrich you know bound to this man and and it's just kind of this kind of woman's worst nightmare situation and of course Dietrich brings just an incredible persona of her own here and and in certain ways this film doesn't really compare it kind of it pales in comparison I should say to uh the Scarlet Empress which is so lurid and 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 is really pretty you know pretty notoriously over the top uh, still this film I think probably grounds itself a little bit closer well I, you can't really say either of those films were closer to the historic <laughs> reality i mean this is a very opulent production as well and has its own kind of uh, caricature cartoonish aspects but it's just not maybe as as um, flamboyant uh, in its kind of uh, erotic psychological uh, themes and and just kind of the you know, I don't just the really exaggerated aspect of what you see in the Scarlet Empress, which I think is a, a fantastic film that really would would flourish on a Blu-ray transfer if that ever happens, because I think it's just such a visually overwhelming movie that you just want to see it in its best resolution possible. So this film here, a little bit of a different feel. Um, the actress who plays Catherine, uh, what's her name? Uh, Elizabeth Bergner. She was actually the wife of Paul Zinner, the director that Corda hired in. And uh, this was supposed to be a bit of a star-making vehicle for her. I don't know that Bergner ever had anywhere, you know, certainly didn't have the career that Dietrich did. And I'm not sure she really launched from this film into bigger and better things. But, you know, she, she did a, a credible job. And I think one of the interesting things about this film I got was just sort of this this idea of female empowerment uh, kind of depicted 1930s style. Um, mm -hmm. Just the fact that here's a woman who stepped into a man's world and uh, in a way starts as this kind of timid, childlike creature and becomes a very confident and bold uh, and, you know, a, a woman in charge. And, and uh, she's basically, you know, threatened with a pretty serious... Uh, coup attempt and and prevails at the end and that's a, that's a that's a pretty refreshing take for 1930s films especially yeah no i i agree i i thought that uh having her being you know bullied by her husband and and the the court wanting her to take charge 
And her at first being like, no, you know what? I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be loyal to him. But finally being like, okay, <laughs> I've had it because he's such a such a slime ball. Um, you know, I, I also thought that that was pretty refreshing for the time period. Um, and and definitely one of the one of the aspects I liked what I did. What another thing I liked, I, I liked the the part with them uh kind of getting together you know in this film it's presented as though she really did love him um really did did not have any ambitions to become the empress or overthrow him no, i think she just was there to do her duty she'd mm-hmm. been raised for this purpose and that's what she expected to do and then she find things got much more complicated along yeah. the way and so I, I liked how the film started out almost on a light tone where but but not not necessarily letting the Grand Duke Peter um, off the hook. He's still a scoundrel um, because he can't see that, you know, he, he gets really offended once when she tells him she's had 17 lovers, which <laughs> right. she's never had a lover in her life. She She's um, she's exaggerating to, to make herself, you know, uh, she's, she's heard reports that that might help him to love her more if he senses some jealousy or exactly. or that other men desire her and so she lies to him but he he just gets jealous in a in a very negative way wants to to get an annulment and so it doesn't quite work for her but uh, the empress uh, elizabeth uh, she kind of uh, plays with things and and helps them um get together so the marriage doesn't fall apart um because uh, Catherine really does love Peter, really does want to be with him. So she kind of plays a game with him and and um, tells him about all of her lovers and he, he's getting he, – now he's getting the sense that, oh, she is very desirable. I What am I doing? But he never senses that he's being a hypocrite because he's fine having all the lovers he's had. Um, uh, and in fact, it kind of plays with that toward the end and he almost looks like he might come off as a, as a redeemed character because he realizes – Okay, she's just doing what I would do because I'm an idiot, and I, I, I and when when she, when she says none of that's true, I've had no lovers. That's when he recognizes that he's been an idiot, um, calls himself an idiot, and I, I kind of liked that. But then I liked how it all of a sudden, you know, this is a marriage that's going to have a wedge driven in it very quickly, and he's just an awful person. And I liked seeing her really become more empowered um, in this process. Of you know trying to to be faithful to him until she realizes she can't be, um, you know she even has a little speech once where she says you know a, a wife's place is to be faithful to her husband, but also faithful to her children, and re- and protect them to yeah. the end. And that's uh, you know she says you know all of Russia is my child. I have to I have to um, to step in here and. And you know it, it certainly isn't uh, perfect, and and yeah, there, I I don't think it has any um, real comparison to the artistic feat of the Scarlet Empress, um, in in any way. Uh, but for what it's trying to do, um, again with some very excellent set design by Vincent Corda, apparently that almost tanked the film. <laughs> it was very expensive for its time period because of that. There are um, so many scenes that are just glittering with mm-hmm. opulence and, and ornate detail. And it's like, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the people writing the checks are like, you know, we could have done with it just a little bit <laughs> less than all that. You know? <laughs> I'm sure it would have looked just as fine. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, this is a film where you really can just sort of let the plot do its thing and just sit back and just watch all those 
magnificent details uh, kind of spool across the screen right in front of you there. And there's there's a lot to enjoy in all of that. I don't necessarily want to overlook or take all that for granted. Yeah, but but again, not not a masterpiece. No, no <laughs> not, these these are these are curiosities. They're, they're I mean, you're right. One of the saving graces is that they are fairly short, so they're not going to demand a ton of your time. Um, I'm also just kind of curious. I mean, what what is it about Catherine the Great as a character that would uh, persuade two studios to say let's sink a lot of money into making a movie about her in the very same year? Was it uh, just the fact that she is kind of this uh, you know? Sort of almost not 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 exactly like a Lady Godiva, but you know, a woman with sort of a a, a libertine uh, reputation, a Cleopatra type of thing, uh, where where these you know these women who are able to live and enjoy the privileges uh, normally accorded to men in in positions of power are a sort of an object of fascination themselves. Like, boy, if you if you gave a woman all the freedom and license that uh, powerful men enjoy. What would her life be like? And so you've got these historic figures like, like I say, you know, Catherine the Great and Cleopatra and others, where we can sort of project onto the, that canvas uh, a little fantasy of what it would be like to be a, a woman completely in charge of your own affairs and not only running your own life, but running a country and, and all the intrigues and all the romance and all the drama uh, that come along with it. it. This is very much escapist fantasy. I think that's where the appeal is found. Yeah, except, you know, if we do step, you know, and talking about just the Catherine the Great story, I think it fits a lot more for for Marlena Dietrich um, because how do you find a role that that really encapsulates all that you can see going on with that actress and and with her power that she just kind of exudes in her films? And so I almost feel like in that case it was – okay, von Sternberg's thinking what's next for for Marlena – Let's just do Catherine the Great and and have her, you know, show that transformation and become uh, just this object of fascination for not just me, but for the audience as well. Um, that doesn't happen, I don't think, in, in this – the rise of Catherine the Great. I don't think we're ever – you know, she, she's presented a little bit – a little bit easily almost in the – this this uh, a style of the time of you know here's a moral lesson and here's someone who prevailed right. whereas the scarlet empress is much more about the psychology and the and the um the uh just this this evolution of this woman and and i think it's it's quite fascinating i i, I also i i don't know i feel like at that time there there were uh, uh there was more fascination and and maybe it was misplaced um and ill ill conceived but but with the power of um, of a, a woman, you know, there there were a lot of roles with Cleopatra and and um, you know, kind of transforming these innocents into into vamps in a way, you know. Um, yeah. And again, that doesn't necessarily happen in the rise of Catherine the Great. But if we're just stepping back to why this particular story would work and how it maybe even came to to fruition in the scarlet empress i think that that's part of it as well um uh i think for for corda just um doing some reading and how much he was you know engaged with history how much he you know he just enjoyed these these classic stories 
I wonder if he just thought, okay, I'm going to do Henry VIII. I'm going to do Cyrano de Bergerac, which he never got to do. I'm going to do uh, Don Juan. I'm going to do Catherine the Great. And it just kind of happened that way. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure if there's much more um, going on for him. But I don't know. What do, what do you think? I'm, well, I think I'm just scrambling on uh, here and not fine. probably making a lot of sense. But <laughs> oh, I'm following along. I think our listeners are too. You know, th- well, let's let's face it. I mean, the studios definitely when they have a hit, they they like to work that formula until the 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 vein seems to have been tapped dry. And so, um, you know, again, the private life of Henry VIII was was a huge blockbuster. It was basically a very um, uh, profitable roll of the dice. Uh, I think Corda, you know, some of the you know, essays I was reading basically said that he put everything on on that film uh, with with Charles Lawton, and it and it turned up, you know, gangbusters. So he won his bet, and that that funded uh, another uh, assortment of productions. And I feel feel like he just said, "Hey, if, if that if that uh, gimmick worked." that successfully let's just do the sequel and of course you know hollywood and not only hollywood but but a lot of other studios have discovered that the audiences like to have a little bit more of the same they like to return to the familiar with just a little bit of a different twist so yeah so his next one was a let's let's do a powerful man let's do a powerful woman and uh and then you know i think that's that's really basically where we go here is as uh, variations on the theme of the private life of somebody that, you know, we think we know, but we're going to try to peel back the curtain a bit, give you a little bit of a different look at it, and uh, see what the audiences enjoy about it. So, yeah, I think now, the other thing, one, too, go ahead. One thing that in the liner notes by Michael Koreski, he, he does say that Catherine the Great was in production before the release of Henry VIII. But I'm sure you're right that they, they maybe they even were able to use some of the some of the materials for hmm. the next film. Um, and they, maybe they saw the writing on the wall um, uh, as to how Henry VIII would do. But um, but it wasn't drawn up maybe as, as a pure sequel. Uh, maybe it was just a heartfelt, I want to do this one next, because for all those reasons that you said, you know, here's here's not just what the audience would want, but here's what I want to do. I had so much fun with this powerful figure in, in, um, in the history of, of, of monarchy. Um, now I want to do the powerful woman, but, um, but maybe he didn't know yet how Henry VIII was going to do. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me though, if, if once Henry VIII started to do well, they, they also boosted the production, um, costs in this film, um, where Henry VIII, uh, reportedly was between, uh, 55 and 60,000 pounds. Catherine the Great was, um, 127,000 pounds, um, almost wow. well, more than double, um, but didn't quite do the do as well as Henry VIII. But um, uh, yeah, I can definitely see the 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 evolution in a, in a producer's mind. And I'm glad that he got a different director. I really did not think that Corda was doing a good job in the first one. I was surprised, in fact, when you said that um, Corda still had a, a strong hand in the directing of Catherine the Great because it looked like Zinner had a much more natural feel for um, you know what you can do with a camera for for to to get various effects you know he didn't set it up just as a stage shot he would he would move it around different angles close-ups long shots you know he seemed to know a lot more um about what he was doing and it it worked a lot better for me um also better editing i wonder if this was edited by the same fellow it was okay well i think you know maybe they just had uh you know uh, 
they they just knew they had to raise their game. They they had some more resources. Certainly the 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 era of Henry VIII gave you know permission to have more you know primitive looking sets. You didn't have to have this kind of opulent dripping with jewels and satins. I mean, you know, Henry VIII, Mm -hmm. he had his furs and things like that, but his court was not nearly as, as, uh, you know, just glowing with with the the jewelry and the drapes and all the other fineries that uh, you sort of associate with Catherine the Great, uh, the empress of of all Russia. So, yeah, yeah, I think also, you know, Elizabeth Bergner just did not have the charisma of Marlena Dietrich. So there's a a different ambition, a different style, and a different result. But uh, how about we move on to The Private Life of Don Juan? Um, I'm thinking at this point, this might be the film I enjoyed the most out of this revisit. I mean, I have... I had seen all these movies before. I'd written about them for my Journey Through the Eclipse series on Criterion Cast, but I'd never really sat down and gone through all four of them in sequence like I did over the course of this past week. And I think The Private Life of Don Juan, maybe it's just because I can relate to this character <laughs> more, <laughs> more <laughs> than uh, than uh, uh, any of the others, you know. Uh, or I just found the whole premise just that much more amusing. At this, It might, was. And it might, I think its reputation might be that this is perhaps the least of the four films in this set. Maybe there's others who would put Catherine the Great as number four um, if they were to rank them. Uh, and that might just be the the reputation or the effect of Charles Lawton as a pretty, you know, immense performer. But I just found this film really quite amusing and, and very accessible. Uh, of course, Don Juan is... Uh, is the you know legendary character now? Is is there a historic reality that he's based on? Do you know Trevor either way? Is there a real life Don Juan, or is this really just more of a a reputation uh, or sort of a fictional character that sort of became a staple? Uh, the the balcony climber, the the wooer of women neglected by their husbands, the the you know the Spanish. Uh, romantic uh, ideal of of uh, suave manhood and and uh, elegance and grace and erotic uh, you know super human abilities <laughs> there i mean that's that's kind of don juan is is this you know it's uh, stable yeah, right it's a it's a he's a myth a mythological okay. i mean he's a legend it's fictional sure but you know as the movie teaches us we are all Don Juan, <laughs> exactly. And, but, and, but yes, yeah. he, as as far as uh, uh, there is no historical Don Juan, and I think that's what's so much fun about this movie. I, I agree. I think this might be my favorite. It might not sit, stand up as well on a ton of subsequent viewings as say Rembrandt, right. um, which I think is a little bit more subtle and uh, has a lot going on in it. But I, I really liked the plot of the Private Life of Don Juan, and I really liked what it was up to. And, you know, it seemed like there was more going on than just the plot. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in, in my in my review on Criterion Cast, I actually um, kind of linked it up to a film that I think just turned out to be a little bit more forgettable than I was imagining. That's a movie called Don John that was uh, directed and starred Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I guess it was his first effort kind of on the indie circuit as a director of course he's a been an actor for you know a long time starting as a kid and uh you know he was kind of in inception and had kind of a, a hot little run there and i'm sure we haven't seen the last of him but he had created this this uh story called don john about a uh you know a kind of a studly virile guy in his 20s but he had 
developed a pretty unfortunate addiction to internet pornography. And so kind of a, a pretty strange 21st century twist on this story. But obviously by naming his movie Don John, there's a pretty clear allusion to the Don Juan myth, the, the legend. And uh, I also noted that there's probably been over 200-plus movies made over the years just with the name Don Juan incorporated into the title, making Don Juan the wow. subject. So, you know, this is a this is territory that's been very well trod and is just completely, uh, you know, magnetic for for film directors. Uh, these, uh, you know, um, you know these these uh, ultra lovers, these these romantic uh, uh, superheroes who just you know conquests of women and and uh, their seductive powers. Uh, are unparalleled and and so here you're taking it sort of back to its original source uh, there's you know the 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 the, the song of the caballero and there's the jealous husband standing guard and there's the women peeking out their balconies and you know the guy at the wide-brimmed hat tossing roses and all that kind of i know it's it's, it's just kind of silly and kind of uh you know amusing to me just to watch it but then it gets into the story uh, which is another kind of a meta take. This is Douglas Fairbanks Sr., uh, who was the father in real life of Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who played the Grand Duke Peter uh, in uh, Catherine the Great. And I guess to maybe make one last um, kind of out-of-place reference to that film, uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., of course, was another sort of son of Hollywood royalty, and that was another interesting take. Uh, his his uh, coming of age, so to speak, as a serious actor, at least that's what he was trying to accomplish in that movie. He had been really cast in his father's shadow and had never gotten, you know, significant parts. And this, to him, was a big breakthrough for him to actually perform and act in what he considered a serious role. Uh, you know, <laughs> of, of a petulant... Yeah, um, of a little brat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know... Might it, have been his doom. I yeah. Guess. yeah. <laughs> it, it, it actually we always thought that's who you were. <laughs> <laughs> Played a type, you know, right. So, so you know, interesting little side note, but I'll just let that stand for what it is. But here we are uh, with Douglas Fairbanks Sr., who, of course, really was one of the, you know, most... Uh, legendary global superstars of the silent film era. Uh, you know, he and his wife, Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin had founded United Artists. Uh, he was zero. He was, uh, what was his other big role? There was, two. Oh, he was in the Musketeers. Yeah. He three was, Musketeers. Right. Yeah. But I mean, swashbuckling. Exactly. I mean, he was a Don Juan in yeah. the eyes of many Absolutely. audience members. Right. Yeah, he, he could do the sword play. He could uh, swing from ropes. He could climb buildings. And he was a guy who, you know, in the finest tradition of the olden days, he did all his own stunts. So it wasn't just, you know, his, his looks on screen. He was the consummate performer and he's the guy who did it all and uh, just pulled it all off uh, quite flawlessly and, was, of course, was was richly rewarded for it and lived a very lavish lifestyle and sort of like Corda himself uh, in his own way was a mover and shaker of uh, old-time Hollywood. Uh, well, this turns out to have been Douglas Fairbanks' last film, and, uh, and it's a, just an interesting way for him to go out because the whole theme of the movie is about a man who's you know, clearly his best days are behind him. He's still got, you know, a little bit of that old spark left, but he's certainly not the 
you know, robust lover man that he once was. And, uh, and he's kind of okay to let some of that old reputation die down, and yet it follows him around because the, uh, the legend of Don Juan is so, so firmly established that uh, men you know, half his age or, or, or younger are impersonating him, or they're, they're, they're doing their best uh, version of Don Juan. And, and of course, uh, in the town of Seville, which is where Don Juan was from, uh, the the reappearance of this uh, of this uh, scandal monger is is uh, you know causing some mayhem in in the households of all the respectable gentlemen and their ladies. You know the women are waiting for their private visit from Don Juan, and the the men are all on guard and alert because they don't want their wife being seduced out from underneath them. And uh, Don Juan himself, the real Don Juan, who's kind of sitting there living incognito, is kind of wondering what's going on. And that's that's kind of the the the, the friction here that that drives the story. He's trying to figure out, you know, who's this imposter, and 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 uh, what am I supposed to do with myself, anyways? Now that I'm kind of a little bit past my prime, uh, where do we go from here? That's kind of <laughs> that's kind of the dilemma, and I just find it the whole thing kind of. Uh, uh, a little bit farcical, but uh, quite funny to think about you know, Fairbanks himself, who, as a as a sound era actor, I guess I'll just say, you know, leave something to be desired. Yeah, it, it, I think it. I, I I didn't. I hadn't when I was watching this. When I wasn't necessarily thinking of it in those terms, but it fits so well with Douglas Fairbanks' own story. You know, where where audience members expect a certain thing from him. And when he fails to deliver because he's older, and now you hear his voice, which isn't this commanding, you know, voice. It's not. He's not even go, trying to uh, sound Spanish or Latin right. or anything. So I was talking like this, you know? <laughs> and you just get this sense of sort of entitlement and privilege, and he kind of just doesn't give a damn, you know, just kind of like, yeah. yeah, whatever. I'll just stand up on the stage and say my lines and do my thing, and they'll just have to deal with it. And, and so the myth starts to dissipate around you. You know, you, you're watching this person on stage that maybe you've, you've, has, you know, he's grown to impossible stature in your mind. Um, and now you see him kind of uh, up on stage as he is, and it all just kind of floats away. And that's such a great uh, parallel to the Don Juan story that they're portraying here where he, you know, can't convince people that he's Don Juan now, now, now that they think Don Juan is dead. Um, because, you know, it's a plot, plot portion when he comes out, you know, to them, the myth is, is kind of, uh, back in the background. Now there is nobody who encapsulates us. So when he steps out on stage and uh, claims to be Don Juan, no one believes him anymore. And, and they start to make fun of him and he can see himself for the first time a little bit as he really is too, that, that his power was on the myth, not on himself. And yeah, he did some stuff to create that myth. But the myth grew to be much more impressive than the man, and you know all these all these women who normally would would want to be with him just because he is Don Juan. You know they they that blinds them to to his old age or to his you know to his voice or whatever. Um, now they they have no interest in him anymore. <laughs> right, right. I really liked the scene where he thinks he's wooing a, a certain lady and finds out that it's. It's her, like I don't know, just another old woman who's like, "Oh, I'll be with you." <laughs> he's like, "No, that's that's not what I want," and that kind of forces you to go. Why is it okay for Douglas Fairbanks to come in here and play Don Juan 
and yet it's almost uh, you know a little bit repellent to for this old woman to be like hey i'll be your lover um you know some of the sexual politics going on with that i thought were interesting but uh but yeah i i liked the 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 storyline i liked the the exploration into a myth and how you just can't live up to it uh and and once the myth has been dissipated um you know you're left standing in your underwear basically there's no one <laughs> no one's impressed <laughs> yeah right and, and then that's the thing that's the that kind of again that meta aspect of kind of this meditation on celebrity and aging and power and and really the 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 aphrodisiac effect of of that reputation it's it's the fact that it's don juan who came up and kissed me it's not anything actually physical that went on it's not like he has some sort of technique or power but it's the fact that don juan himself noticed me and that i've had this moment and the, i was the, one of the yeah the conquests right. I was the lucky one right yeah. and and of course we we see aspects of that in our own celebrity culture it's it's you know what kind of you know outrage or what kind of connections or who's entourage are you a part of and that sort of spins you off into your own little whirlwind and then and the the dancer character played by merle oberon who is really gorgeous in this film and and she has her own uh star power and, and charisma going on I, I enjoyed her contributions that that's kind of her claim to fame i mean she's a dancer and she can do all that but oh she was one of don juan's intimates you know that's that's kind of her calling card that's kind of what gets her entry uh, and and secures her, her fame, of course. Then there's the fickleness of, of things going back and forth. And, and then there's also, in the background, this uh, story of uh, Don Juan's actual wife, uh, who's been cruel to him and mistreated him. But, you know, the same can be bo- said on both sides. He's hardly been, uh, you know, uh, virtuous or faithful to her. And so there's a lot of, you know, if you want to, bring it back down to seriousness again uh, there's been a lot of hurt there's been a lot of mistrust there's a lot of been a lot of betrayal and and uh you know just just emotional wounds inflicted uh and that's driven them apart and yet uh when it all comes down to it after don juan has had his run uh, where where do we wind up again and and there's whether you want to say this is a moralistic ending or is this just a uh, recognition that uh, you know, well, what's that line? Uh, marriage is is uh, you know like a besieged city. You yeah. know, those who are in want to get out, and those who are out want to get in. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a little little sage wisdom there, I guess. Uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but it's a pretty funny little framing to put around that whole device there. Yeah, but yeah, an, an enjoyable one, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I liked. It. I would be curious if people. Um, who rank this one at the bottom of the set? Because I'm I'm kind of with you. I I think there's a, a lot of fun in the film itself, but certainly, I mean, just the Douglas Fairbanks angle is just rich. That's that's fun to think about, and it's sad that this is his last film because you know that's just that's just a sad thing. But it's really fitting. Well, yeah, and I think it's be, just the kind of character he was. He he wasn't probably destined to be. You know the kind of actor who finds his next gear as an older presence. You know, I mean, I don't know who you want to think about of actors who've made that transition to old age. You know, Henry Fonda or Jack Nicholson in his own way. He's he wasn't that kind of an actor. Actor, and of course, the the film industry was just so different. I mean, in a silent era, 
its physicality, its its you know you know visual presence. It's it's just how you look on the screen and how you emote, and then the kind of roles he had. He wasn't really trying to convey the subtleties of you know interpersonal relationships. Um, so so where do you go when that's been your whole reputation? You know, you've been an action figure basically. Now you've got to figure out how to how to do something new when your body just doesn't do the same thing and of course he he lived pretty you know not not hard but you know chain smoker and drinker and i'm sure he 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 just had, you know you know had all the the pleasures and indulgences uh, that his life afforded him and did not live a long life i think he was dead of a heart attack four or five years after this film came out mm-hmm. so that's basically his swan song right there yeah i like how you called him an action figure too just Knowing that because he's silent, you know the audience can kind of do with him what they want. They 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 get the mental image of him swashbuckling and doing these amazing things, but then they can they can make him speak. They can make him that um, they can imagine his private life, and that's how the myth starts to grow. And uh, but then you know again denuded here at the end. Uh, never mind. <laughs> that's not that's not who you really are. That's not uh, Douglas Fairbanks, or you're not Don Juan, you know. And you're really not. You're right. just not what they what what that name means anymore. Well, and it still comes down to who are who do we connect with? Our relationships, our family, our inner circle, the the real people that we associate with. Uh, you know, you, you can do all the legendary things. You can make history in your own way, or you know, have your public reputation out there. But really, you're still a human being. You still gotta live with somebody or live with certain people, and those are the folks who know you behind the facade, behind the image. And uh, yeah, again, back to that whole private lives concept, I guess. Yeah. All right, so uh, how about Rembrandt? Let's kind of get into the last of the four here, this little quartet of historic figures. We've we've talked about legendary rulers and legendary lovers, and now here's an artist. Uh, I think this is kind of an interesting note to go out on, the the life of uh, uh, this is a more reflective, a little more introspective film. Uh, You know, certainly Rembrandt uh, had his own type of flamboyance and his own... Uh, you know, larger than life persona, but uh, this is a this is a more reflective film uh, compared to the the three previous, where it's really big gestures and and historical sweeps and you know uh, big emotions. Here, uh, this is a man who's uh, driven by by melancholy, um, pensiveness, uh, this creative, uh, expressive ability. Uh, kind of cuts against the grain. I mean, he's, you know, you know, not bohemian regionally, but he certainly has that kind of, you know, uh, I don't know what's the what's the word I'm looking for, but just those artistic qualities. A guy who just won't be tamed, won't be uh, content to just be a, a regular part of mainstream society. Uh, the he's great kind of isolated in his own head. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, has this has this consuming vision for painting is of course brilliant and celebrated but uh, just a real nonconformist just does not want to play by the rules and uh, runs into all kinds of grief because of that so so yeah what do you think of Rembrandt I I liked this one and I I need to watch it again because I I wonder if my estimation of it is because it's so totally different from the first three films 
you know, you sit down with this one and, and it's much quieter and Lawton himself has, you know, it's, it, his head is where the action is going on inside of his head and you can see it, but it, it's not this uh, scene chewing role anymore. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's still a big presence, but he's yeah. not, he's not, you know, stomping and striding around. And that's a, that's a real testimony to his, his art, artistic range as an actor and also just his intelligence to say, I've got to really draw on different aspects of who I am to inhabit this role. Yeah. Like, the, you know, when they, um, well, I don't know if we need to get into the plot too much on this one. It's, it, it is interesting. But I think a, a lot more interesting is just um, his interior, uh, you know, knowing that this this film focuses on on him kind of as a as a as he is separate from the world around him. And so there's a there's a part where they're unveiling, you know, what has become one of the most famous paintings of all time, the Night Watch. And he's just sitting there watching people. And <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to go and approach him at that moment because he just you can tell there's a lot going on and that he is just on a different plane than everybody else in that room who's responding in this particular adaptation rather negatively about uh, toward the painting and you know he's in control of himself he's not uh, swinging his arms or or beating anything down but you can tell in his in his head there's just a lot going on and and Lawton really does exude that it's it, it is impressive i mean i um, the the last few f- films I've seen with him have been ones where he's kind of a larger than life character, like um, um, oh, what's the not the Island of Doctor Moreau? What's the one that's in the cr- collection that that is based on that story with him as oh, the Doctor? Um, the Island of Lost Souls. Yeah, the Island so, of Lost Souls, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you know, I'm used to seeing him in things like the Island of Lost Souls. Um, and and you forget some of his more subtle roles or more interior roles like Hobson's Choice or, or um, you know these these, these that he he really was a, a a supreme actor who could be over the top but fittingly you know or he could be rather subtle like in like in Rembrandt and so it was really fun to see him kind of bookending this set in in these roles that are. Very, very different, um, but still these larger-than-life figures. He's he's definitely suited to play larger-than-life figures. Yeah, well, you know, I, I I have not ever explicitly made this association, but I sort of think of him like as an Orson Welles type of character. Maybe that's a very common <laughs> linkage, or maybe not. I don't know, but uh, just sort of occurs well, I've, to I've me. I've never but, heard it. Yeah, but, I mean, just, you know, they're, they're, they're both kind of physically large men who – have a a real knack for the the big gesture you know the oration uh the 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 physical posturing uh, the the flourishes of of facial expression and you know oratory all those things um and and with careers that you know achieved a lot of impressive things but there was also this kind of uh, sense of uh, sort of underlying psychological torment going on uh, as they went about. I mean, there's a joy in the creation, but there's also kind of a a sadness or kind of a, even a sense of as as great as they were, 
maybe some potential that wasn't exactly fulfilled to its fullest. I don't know. I'm just no, kind of I, yeah. you know, straggling I, thoughts together there. I, yeah, I've never know. thought about that, but they seem to each have projects that that they just didn't feel up to doing, though right. they wanted to. Well, and that they um, were also, you know, they were a little bit outcast. Like, they were, they were great, you know, creative minds and personalities, but just at a different vibe or different frequency than a lot of their contemporaries. A lot of their peers just didn't quite get them, or they were just sort of a breed apart themselves. And I think Rembrandt definitely, uh, this, is, this is that aspect of Charles Lawton that I think comes through in this performance here is that you know Rembrandt you know, was 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 very talented and and revered and respected and yet you know the whole issues that he ran into with his debts and with the uh, you know sort of the liens placed against his ability to to make a living and the poverty that resulted because uh, he just didn't play by the rules that that in a way is kind of you know you know, you know, Lawton. You know, he he directed the one film, uh, Night of the Hunter, but, but there were some there were some real reversals that he had to to work through and struggle through. I mean, there's a great uh, legacy of achievement, but it wasn't just all you know rose strewn path. And certainly Orson Welles's difficulties and getting financing and finding his niche in the in the studio system are are even more legendary than than what Lawton had to endure. So and it was just kind of interesting, yeah. yeah. One one thing. So I've I've never thought of these actors together, but maybe you aren't the first because um, Simon Callow, the the actor who also does the biographies, mm-hmm. you know, he he's just put out the third volume of his Orson Welles biographies. Sure. Um, are you familiar with those? I, I just by reputation a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I haven't read them. I would love to, but I know Ryan talks him up and and is a big fan. He also wrote a biography on Charles Lawton. Yeah. Um, called Charles Lawton, a difficult actor, and he wrote um, the uh, BFI uh, film classics book on the Night of the Hunter. So oh, okay. he's wow. uh, That's he's yeah he's been drawn dug into to those these two. two. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, I I can just sort of see that. I'm sure that's a very you know that's an interesting uh, course of investigation. I'll maybe have to follow up on that, especially with a few Orson, like with a, with a couple more Orson Welles titles coming in Criterion. Uh, Later this summer, I think in August there, uh, maybe we'll have to tease that one out just a little bit more here. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I also want to say again, the, the set designs, the lighting, there's, there, you really do get a sense of the, you know, you're in the world of the Flemish masters. And I, I'm sure a lot of it's just these kind of low perspective, uh, camera just up off the floor, all the, all the burgers in their black suits and white frilled collars and i mean just you, you have a lot of scenes that boy i've seen that in a painting somewhere before you know <laughs> and uh just a pretty cool sense of atmosphere of course uh, my, oh, yeah. my family Beautiful. is from a dutch ancestry so i kind of enjoy you know the windmills and some of the uh some of the, the depictions of the old country some of these are of course pretty uh, nicely rendered miniatures and uh, i i i kind of enjoy films from that era when they put some of that craftsmanship uh, on camera so there's there's a lot of uh, elements to enjoy here, of course. Uh, Elsa Lanchester, uh, uh, his wife, uh, 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 Charles Lawton's wife, there uh, played a pretty you know, key role as one of the servants, and uh, you know she does a pretty nice job in, in her turn. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 to, to talk about the, the lighting and all of that, I mean, that's a, such a famous part of Rembrandt's work that he, he worked in darkness almost as much as light. And um, I loved that the, the film kind of plays with that in its own lighting. It, it really is a re- quite remarkable design again. <laughs> you know, that yeah. uh, if, if I were, in fact, if maybe if I were even to pick the, the thing I admired the most about it, it would be that, you know, the, the, as you said, you, you can, you, you're walk, watching these people walk around the set and you go, well, that, that's a painting. I've seen that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, you've right. seen these characters. And, um, oh, I was going to also bring up, uh, I, I, I loved that um, Roger Livesey is in this. Yes, yeah, that old beggar um, there, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I love Roger Livesey. We, we talked about him a little bit with the drum when we were on the, the Sabu set. Um, but I didn't know that he was in this. And at first, I didn't recognize him as a person. It was when he started to talk, and I thought, who is that? And um, and I was drawn to him in this before I recognized that it was Roger Livesey. Yeah, he plays he plays a a beggar. Yep. And um, and I, I noticed because when when that part kind of came up, I was also thinking of um, uh, Renoir's Baudu saved from drowning. Oh yeah, yeah, that's and a great just, connection. Yeah, you made it though too. I mean, I made it <laughs> before I read your your review uh-huh. on uh-huh. on Criterion Cast. Yeah. But uh, but you also um, talked about. Kind of him showing up in a Baudu-esque uh, role, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and he, you know he's he's just a strong presence in it. Uh, it's not like he has a gigantic role, but, but I, I loved his transformation. It's, it's yeah, memorable. especially if you know Roger Livesey. Of course, he was uh, probably most famous for the uh, Colonel Blimp, and so uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah, that's where you get lots of <laughs> Roger Livesey. Well, and we, we talked about him too with. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Basil Dearden set, he's he's one of the old men in the yep. League of Gentlemen. Yep. Exactly. So he's yeah. he's come up before. He's one of my favorites, and and I, I love seeing him as a transformation on the outside. You know, here he is a beggar, but then he, he steps into into model for one of Rembrandt's paintings. And yeah, uh, right. I'm going to forget who who he actually portrays, well, he, but you know he's, he was he's King Saul. Yeah, he, he's King oh, Saul yeah. in, in a kind of a biblical portrait there, and and again, there's just this irreverence. You just find this old street beggar to to you know, play this, <laughs> you know, distinguished and yet he looks oh, yeah. good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they do transform him just by changing his clothing. Um, not that that's always going to happen, but I think that's where the Bodu part really stood out uh, to me. Uh, he kind of looks like. Um, <laughs> look, it has a similar look to Michelle Modu Simone as well, there, but yeah. Uh, uh-huh. yeah, but um, but yeah, I I I I liked this one. I again, like I said at the beginning, I want to watch it again to see if some of it was just that a lot of this was unexpected in this set. Um, get a little bit more of an independent perspective on this film rather than as you know the fourth film in the Private Lives of Alexander Korda set. I'd I'd like to revisit this one in the future when I've kind of put the other ones aside for a little while. Um, but definitely the tonal shift was welcome. And and uh, I think a film that, that stands up on its own very well. A good biopic as well, which that I don't, I don't think biopics are easy to, to do well, but I, I thought this one did a good job of, of not just running us through the plot line of this person's life and uh, these kind of fake, um, responses to these things like oh this is a profound moment let's have you now interior you're going to go to your right. room and act like it's really struck you with it this was interior in a, in a much better way and a lot of that's Lawton being able to just 
always look interior as he's walking around the set, regardless of all the people around him. It, it, uh, I, I thought this was a good achievement. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, I don't really know a whole lot more than what I saw in this film about the, the details of Rembrandt's life, so I can't really speak to the you know, historical accuracy. But I, yeah, I do feel like you're getting in touch with the mind and the soul of a of an artist. Uh, not in just a generic sense, but of an individual who, who lived in an interesting time and and uh, kind of, you know, marked his era through you know some some of the history's most famous and and admired works of art. You know, I mean, if you've ever had a chance to see a Rembrandt in person, it's quite a moving experience. And even if you've just seen reproductions, they're still very impressive. Just the, you know, the power and then right, those dark backgrounds and just the the way he he brings the light from the canvas is, is is quite exceptional but to sort of get a sense of the person behind these exceptional uh, you know these paintings these images and the emotions that they convey is, is very valuable so uh, I felt like I did get a chance to at least explore one person's interpretation of what Rembrandt the man was all about so yeah. there's a little look at his private life too. So yeah, I think we've, I'm ready to kind of wrap up our conversation on this set. Uh, what, what's your impression overall? I guess I'll just say my thoughts are this is one of what I would consider the less essential Eclipse series sets, unless you just really happen to dig this era of filmmaking. And I know there are people out there who really love the, you know, the the aesthetic and the atmosphere and and all the details of. 1930s style filmmaking and I enjoy it for what it is but I think um, I find other sets much more satisfying and and challenging and invigorating this one here I'm glad we have it I think it's a nice little showcase for kind of a pivotal era in the development of British cinema and uh, London films and Alexander Korda are certainly a huge huge part of uh, as a, at least as, as I have received it uh, a lot of good stuff came out of what Corda started, and even though London Films as an entity doesn't really exist anymore, and kind of you know folded up shop pretty soon after he passed on in the 1956, I think it was. Uh, you know that's that's a pretty impressive legacy that any studio in any nation would be very proud to say, yeah, we we did something uh, significant here. Uh, what are your thoughts on the set as a whole? Um, again, I, I I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Um, I would probably put it in my lower tier right around the Sabu set, which mm-hmm. is, you know, very, it's related to in many ways, um, where it's one that I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad that I, that, that, that's, that it exists and, and, um, wouldn't begrudge anyone for really ad- admiring it. Um, but it has its weaknesses. It's, it, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't come across as, as, as you said, absolutely essential, um, which a, a lot of these Eclipse sets, I think, are, um, but still very enjoyable, still an, a nice thing and and, um, and good story behind it, kind of like the Sabu set. You know, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about when you talk about those films that is just behind the scenes again, and this is uh, very similar to this one. Um, so, yeah, that's about where I would put it. Again, I was really worried after the private life of henry the eighth that i would just absolutely hate this set I, I knew it would never make it down to the bottom 
I've already got room down there yeah. for one. <laughs> the, but um, the basement but, uh, has already been poured, right? Yeah, there's. Uh, we've already covered that one up with the extra concrete. We there's no more room it's down buried, there. There's no right. way of getting lower. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't. It it. it it definitely became very enjoyable. I was I was glad with the time that I spent with them, and and like I said, I, I want to revisit some of these in the near future as as separate from the sets themselves, um, so that I can uh, divorce them a little bit from the context and and maybe see them more as as standalone films, particularly Rembrandt. Um, but uh, and and you know that's not always the case with these sets. Sometimes I'm like, oh, if I ever get around to that again, that'll be fine. <laughs> but um, but also not absolutely essential. Revisit you know favorite films like like uh, the Hiroshi Shimizu set, um, like the Proletariat trilogy set. You know those are those are some of my favorite. The Kenoshita set. Um, you know those those just a. Uh, supreme in in so many ways this did not move me like those but it, it certainly entertained me and um wasn't was a just a good a good uh, escape i guess you know if, if we look back on at those i don't know if i learned a lot about these characters but um i enjoyed escaping into this vision of them yeah yeah this is kind of the lighter side of the eclipse series definitely so uh, i think those are pretty good summary comments so we'll let those stand uh, let's talk about our next episode. Uh, we are going to be jumping up and uh, revisiting some Japanese cinema. We're going to be talking about Eclipse Series 28, The Warped World of Koryoshi Kurahara. So we will cover that sometime in June. I'm sure this may not come out until early part of June. This is Memorial Day weekend that we're uh, recording this on as our May episode. But, uh, you know, give us a few days to edit it and put it out there, and we'll probably have you have this one up and running uh, in the you know in, in the near future but we will be uh, we're looking to line up a guest I won't say anything about who that guest is but we've had a, a a listener who's contacted us and is pretty enthusiastic about the warp world of Koryoshi Kurahara this is a five film set a very richly loaded uh, set of Japanese films from the 1960s with a lot of uh, thematic and stylistic variety even though it's all from one director these films go in a lot of different directions so we may end up splitting this into a two-parter we'll have to see how we work all our schedules out there but i'm pretty excited about this we are i think we said in the last episode kind of narrowing down uh, how many boxes we've got left eight eight of them okay <laughs> there you go <laughs> trevor's got the checklist right there but uh, there are some pretty uh, amazing movies uh, in the uh, months to come uh, before we uh, exhaust the Eclipse series, and we'll see what happens on the Criterion side of things, if there's any new ones coming or not. But uh, oh well, but just I guess we we can mention that yeah. um, Michael Koreski is not with Criterion anymore. That is true. He, he moved on to to a different job. He he said the relationship is is still there, and he was you know I reached out to him to congratulate him. I didn't want to reach out to congratulate him and say what about the eclipse? Right, right. Yeah, that's a little. <laughs> so I haven't brought that up, but uh, you know, with him being gone, um, I guess for the first time, I'm I'm starting to wonder what the future of the eclipse is really going to be if we're. You know, I, I know he's not the only person there. It's right. not like he was the the Eclipse series manager or anything like that. But I think he had a big role. I I know that I, I've reached out to him since the Julien Duvivier set came out, 
And he did mention that there's some in the works. And maybe when he says the relationship is still there, he means, you know, he'll keep writing some of these liner notes for all I know. Yeah. Um, but he's he's not there anymore. He's moved on. So congratulations to him and wish him the best. But, um, you know, what that means for the future of the Eclipse, maybe maybe in eight boxes we – we're done for good, or maybe maybe we're done for a, a little while, and another one will pop up. But I, I hope they keep coming. It, you know, when I, when I said eight that quickly, it wasn't because I was like, "There are only eight left." <laughs> it was that I, ha- as you said, I have the checklist in front of me. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and uh, you know, there's an economic uh, reality. The marketplace is changing. These uh, slimline, bare bones DVDs may not be uh, what the collector types are, are looking to acquire nowadays. And, and I guess you have to look at, well, what are the most recent Eclipse series done? Of course, we don't know what the, the sales figures are, and maybe we'll we'll revisit that my criterion thing. <laughs> maybe after the next uh, Barnes & Noble sale when everybody yeah, restocks, always uh, that's always a good little check to see who's buying what, you know, at least as who's recording it. But, uh, yeah, there, there, I guess there are with some changes happening. And, uh, yeah, yes. Filmstruck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Filmstruck. Uh, yeah, that's well. the other big one, yeah, with the uh, launch of a new, uh, you know, very Criterion-focused uh, streaming service come, so coming sometime later this year, presumably November from the most recent reports I've heard. Uh, will that actually create, you know, uh, more of an incentive for Criterion just to put all their films out in that format and not so much on DVD discs. Uh, you know, will, will they just shift more to Blu-ray only and maybe more to those titles with a, you know, built-in commercial appeal? I mean, I think as much as I've really enjoyed the Criterion releases of this year so far, there does seem to be more of a uh, a safe bet. I mean, they're looking at more, you know, traditional movies with a kind of a, a known following a studio background i mean you know the, i don't see you know hollis frampton type of sets coming out <laughs> lately you know things on that real experimental side um well i don't know what do you think i, you I think that? they're doing a good job keeping it mixed because i felt that way last year i thought 2015 was pretty commercial yeah um but you know we've got um uh, I guess the Kennedy films, the documentaries, yeah. uh, the Naked Island. I'm going to be talking about that on the next Criterion Cast Chronicles. That's They're coming not out exactly... with a Muriel, mm-hmm. which yeah. mm-hmm. you know they they are still hitting some of the. I mean, they've got like in a lonely place, which thank goodness it's beautiful. And, oh, and sure, I, I yeah. love that movie. Yeah. But then you know the a week later, the Naked Island, like you said. Um, so I think that they're keeping it pretty nice and mixed up. Um, the, the Leon Russell film getting its own. Release well, sheesh! If you look at um, the August releases, which I know you guys talked about, um, or what were talked about on the last, um, the, the last mm-hmm. uh, set. I mean, there's two Orson Welles movies, which are kind of underseen, An but Ingrid you know, Bergman some documentary, good sets. right? Right. Yeah, <laughs> but then the Ingrid Bergman documentary, or, or a Woman in the Dunes. Even you know, these are these are not um, necessarily just the safe bet. Uh, these are going to do. Uh, great work and oh and and the la chienne yeah um, mm-hmm. coming out here in a few weeks i'm hoping to get that today in the mail i've well. been told it was sent to me and i i'm i'm dying to watch that i i did my renoir binge last year and um, yeah. uh, not satisfied 
<laughs> well, there's so, more out there. So yeah. there's there's a lot more out there Definitely. for me still, and I'm just thrilled that this one's coming. But you know, things like that. I think that the um, the, the Antonioni film uh, Le Miche mm-hmm. uh, is is going to you know probably not going to be their their best seller as, as you might with uh you know the oh the player that just Zen came out or the yeah, player right, right, right. or or Dr. Strangelove, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, things like that. So I feel like they're doing a good job keeping it mixed up. Oh, yeah. I think I think um, they've ha- they're having a, a really strong year in terms of their mainline releases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just what, you know, what does compel bring itself to, uh, you know, to the forefront as a potential Eclipse series? You know, I think there's a lot of Narase, Kenosha. There's, there's, oh, there's yeah. a lot of great film in in well, in the archive there, but it's just you know what's going to say okay, let's press this up on DVD and who will write the liner mm-hmm. notes? Will they farm it out to outside writers? Or is there somebody else that's going to take uh, Michael Kresge's place as the house writer for Criterion? I don't think there's been an announcement to that effect yet, but uh, maybe we'll have to start checking the inside uh, liner notes on upcoming releases to mm-hmm. see if there's somebody else who's uh, taken over that function. Well, and and I hope that even if they do just, uh, you know, they're done pressing these discs, maybe, and I'm not saying they are or that they they should be done, but if they do start to do all this on Filmstruck, I do hope that there's someone doing some some good work curating. Yes, because you're right. And doing some lighter notes. I mean, Mm -hmm. because otherwise you've got, what, 40 Kenosha films on there. Right. And yeah, it might be great to just go through them all individually, but it's so nice to have someone who's dug in and can give some context and uh Yeah, kind of make and, some themes, we'll put some links mm-hmm. together of how, you know, these five nineteen fifties Narse films kind of fit together or uh or even films by different directors that might have some kind of their other common frame of reference you know so uh i there there is a, definitely a place and i you know i i could see filmstruck doing that whether it's uh through some kind of uh, you know featured list of the month or um you know inviting curators to come in and say here's here's uh you know four or five nuggets from the vault maybe that could be something that we could continue to do ourselves uh, once, Here, we got a yeah, job. Yeah, well, yeah, Let's well, contact well him. <laughs> if when, yeah, if and when the Eclipse viewer has run its course, and uh, you know, I'm open to the idea of doing some more podcasting on some other uh, themes or formats with you, Trevor. So uh, we'll yeah, we'll keep we'll, this thing going. All right. We can tell listeners we ha- we have bounced ideas around for what to do. We haven't settled on anything, and we're not sure what it'll be or when or anything like that. But I think both of us are enjoying this quite a bit, and. Um, it would be fun to to keep going in in some form after after next year's uh, after the next eight box sets um, are done. But we've got some, you know, to bring it back. Yes, I guess yes. we've got some awesome stuff coming up with the the last eight boxes. We've got uh, kind of planned a, a little mini um, Japanese masters series. Well, yeah, with uh, the post war Kurosawa. Uh, uh, the, the Mizoguchi and right. then the Lado Zoo set. I right, mean, that's right. kind of our grand finale. Yeah, um, I, I think the Lado Zoo will be our our last one, unless there's something introduced in the meantime in, in between. But uh, that would be the final note to go on. But that that'll be down the road. We'll we'll work our way up to that uh, particular <laughs> mountaintop. Uh, we got the Nikatsu Noir set. Uh, we do have the George Bernard Shaw. We've got the De Vivier set. A few things that have been mentioned. So, yeah, there will be some interesting variety in the uh, in the months ahead. 
But for now, I think we are ready to wrap up this one here on uh, Corda's Private Live. So thank you for listening. Definitely welcome your feedback. Find us at Eclipse Viewer on Twitter. Uh, of course, I do all my publishing these days through the Criterion Cast website. Uh, Trevor, tell people where they can find you. Yeah, on Twitter at Mooks, M-O-O-K-S-E. And, um, you know, there you'll see where my, my stuff is going up. <laughs> so. All right, cool. Well, I look forward to seeing some of your new reviews of that uh, hot new Criterion product coming out, Trevor. So uh, you have a great Memorial Day, and uh, thanks for everybody for listening in again. We will talk to you next month in the warped world of Koryoshi Kurahara. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>